can turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. We've been in a series of messages throughout Paul's letter to the Romans, and we find ourselves almost halfway through the book this morning as we come to chapter 7. Very interesting chapter and somewhat complex as we hear Paul focus on the law of God, its place in our lives, especially as Christians. In fact, he mentions the law of God no less than 31 times throughout this entire passage. While it's lengthy, I believe it is manageable for us to get and grasp some simple principles as we look at this passage this morning. I want you to notice three things, and these are the divisions of the chapter. Number one, Paul speaks of our release from the law, and that is in verses 1 through 6, our release from the law. Then secondly, Paul offers a defense of the law of God in verses 7 through 13. And then finally, we have the weakness of the law, and Paul outlines that in verses 14 through 25, which is where we will spend the bulk of our time this morning. So with an outline of the message, join me in prayer. Let's ask God to bless our time together in study today. Lord, we ask now that you would speak to our hearts and to our lives. Indeed, Lord, for everyone present, we pray that we all would have an encounter with you, the living God, and that you would meet every one of our needs as you define them. We also pray, Lord, be exalted, you and you alone, in this worship hour and especially in the preaching of your word. We ask all these things confidently now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, first of all, you'll notice that Paul speaks of our release from the law in verses 1 through 6. And I would divide it up this way. First of all, he gives the actual principle. Look at verse 1. Do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? So what Paul is saying is death brings an end to the jurisdiction and the condemnation of the law. A law has authority over a man or a woman as long as he or she lives. Or to put it another way, the law is binding on a person during his or her lifetime. Nevertheless, death brings release from all contractual obligations involving the dead person. In other words, death terminates the relationships established and protected by the law. And so the law is for life, but death annuls it. In summary, Paul is saying death serves or severs one relationship to the law, and release from the law enables a person to be joined to another. Paul is going to be emphasizing once again the all-important concept of our union with Christ Jesus. We die to the law in the sense that we join Christ in unison, dying with Him. When He died on the cross, He died with our flesh. He died to sin. He died to the commandment. Therefore, we are called 
to join him in unison and dying that same death. So Paul gives the principle, and then he gives the illustration. Look at verses 2 and 3. An illustration from domestic married life. In verse 1, or excuse me, verse 2, Paul's point is that death changes not only the obligations of the dead person, but also the obligations of those survivors who had a contract with the dead person. The contrast is clear. The law binds the woman who is married. But if her husband dies, his death sets her free. She is free to remarry another. Moreover, her release is complete. Paul is saying that the woman's status as a wife has been abolished, has been annulled, done away with. She is no longer a wife. Let me hasten to say also, this is a public service announcement, that this also deals with the importance of church discipline. When we discipline an offending spouse, it's as if that person is dead if they're excommunicated. And so whoever the remaining spouse is, they are free to remarry without sin. And that's the importance of church discipline. Because when somebody spurns the grace of Christ and goes on in their sin, they are cut off and treated as if they were dead, spiritually speaking. And so Paul makes it clear through this illustration of the married woman that she is set free from the law of marriage in order that she might be joined to another. Now look at verses 3. Paul draws out a conclusion which leads us to ask, how is it that one remarriage would make her an adulteress while another would not? And the answer lies, of course, in her husband's death. The second marriage is morally legitimate because death has terminated the first. Only death can secure freedom from the remarriage, or the marriage law, and therefore the right to remarry. And these references to death and freedom from the law and remarriage already hint at the application Paul is about to make. So he gives us the principle, he gives us the illustration, and then look at verses 4 through 6. We have an application of the principle. Verse 4, First, we died to the law through Christ's body in order that we might belong to another, that is, to him. Paul is, again, focusing on this union with Christ. You see, it's impossible for the believer to give his or her allegiance to the law of God, the greatest sign of God's revelation to his people up until the time of the gospel. But it's impossible to maintain your focus on the law of God, the Ten Commandments as a summary, and maintain the same focus on Christ. Why is that? Well, just like a first marriage must be terminated at death before a remarriage can be permissible, so death to the law must precede commitment to Christ. And that's why union with Christ is so important. That when I look at those laws, the Ten Commandments, the primary emphasis is what they do to me. They condemn me. I cannot reach satisfaction in keeping those commandments. But that's what Christ did. You notice in Matthew he said, not a single stroke of the law will be annulled or taken away until all is accomplished. And Christ accomplished perfect and personal 
obedience on your behalf and mine as he lived his life for 33 years on this earth. And then in his death, he paid the penalty for you and for me so that we, in union with him, might have our sins forgiven and that we might have a newness of life, that we might be new creatures, a new race, as we have called it, as sons and daughters of God, bought by the perfect blood of Christ. So Paul says, we have died to the law through Christ's body. We do not focus on the law, we focus on Jesus and his perfection of the law. And that, of course, leads us to live by the Spirit in harmony with the law. Now notice in verse 5, he says, the law aroused our sinful passions so that we bore fruit for death. The sequence of law equals sin and death may have given Paul's readers the distinct impression that he thought the law was responsible for both, for sin and death. But that is not the case, and Paul's going to make that clear. Thirdly, we have now been released from the law in order to serve in the newness which the Holy Spirit brings. And this is the Spirit-controlled life. And it was impossible until we received our discharge from the law. So Paul says, in summary, as a believer, you have been released from the demands and the condemnation of God's law. There's no longer any need for that sense of guilt and sense of shame because Christ has taken it all away. And if you're in union with him, you're a son or a daughter of God. Now, you'll notice Paul seeks to be balanced because secondly, in verses 7 through 13, he gives a defense of the law of God. You know, some people might have thought, well, Paul is really down on the law. The law is a bad thing. The law brings about sin. The law brings about death. No, it's not the law. It's the sin in us. That's the problem. And so Paul defends the law in verses 7 through 13 against any antinomian practices or thoughts. This section opens with the question in verse 7, is the law sin? No. The law is a means of grace as it serves to expose and highlight our sin. It also serves to bring about a just and an equitable society. It's the perfect guide for righteousness. And Paul offers three effects of the law in relation to sin. This is what makes the law a good thing. First of all, the law reveals sin. Look at verse 7a. I would not have come to know sin except through the law. I believe Paul is making it clear here that the law made Paul aware of the gravity of his sin, and the law brought Paul under the conviction of sin. The law is like a microscope. When you put it on something, it begins to stand out. You can see all of it. You can see it in its full measure. And that's what the law does. And he cites the Tenth Commandment, the commandment concerning covetousness. We don't know that Paul <clears throat> was necessarily a covetous person, but perhaps he was. Perhaps this is an area of transparency that he's dealing with in his own life. Or it's just a simple example that the law brings to the forefront sinful tendencies inside of us. Not only that, but the law provokes sin. Look at verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. 
Paul is saying that sin establishes within us a base or a foothold by means of the commandment which provokes us. Ever since the time of Adam and Eve, human beings have always been enticed to forbidden fruit. Now you think about that. When you come up to a traffic stop, I know I see the red light at a traffic stop, and it says stop. And my instinctive reaction is, why should I? (laughs) Or we see on the door the notice, private, do not enter. What is your tendency? We immediately want to cross the prohibited threshold. I love Augustine in connection to this in his Confessions, where he talks about stealing pears. He and his childhood friends. His motive, he confesses, from stealing pears from his neighbor was not that he was hungry. They took the pears and they threw them to the pigs. No, he says, quote, I stole something which I had in plenty and of much better quality. My desire was to enjoy not what I sought by stealing, but merely the excitement of thieving and the doing of what was wrong. He loved the sweetness of sinning at that point. The law provokes sin in us. It draws it out. But thirdly, the law condemns sin. Look at verses 9 through 11. Paul outlines the fact that the commandment leads to sin, and sin leads to death in verse 9. And then Paul says in verse 10, he goes on to remind us of the original intention of the law, that it was not to lead to sin and death. The original intention of the law was to be a means of grace to God's people. But it's the sin in us that made it something that was bad for us. Finally, in verse 11, he places the blame where it belongs. The law of God is not our problem. It is the sin within us. And so he answers the question, is the law sin? No. May it never be. And he concludes in verse 12, the law is holy and righteous and good. Paul basically vindicates the law of God of any wrongdoing. The law of God is certainly not sin. The law simply points us to the real problem. It's not the external code, the Ten Commandments. It's the internal pollution of sin. And so the law is exonerated. The indwelling sin accounts for the weakness of the law. And Paul is going to go on to show us that in the next paragraph. So, so far we've seen our release from the law by our union with Christ. Secondly, Paul defends the law. The law is not sin. The law is not evil. The law is not the culprit for my death, spiritually. But Paul introduces for us in verses 14 through 25 the weakness of the law. Now, he does this by way of personal testimony. And there's been a lot of controversy about who is actually writing these verses. Is Paul talking about himself in the past? Is Paul talking about when he was not a believer Is Paul talking about his experience as a believer? Well, we know that the verbs in verses 7 through 13 are in the past tense. We notice in verses 14 through 25, they're in the present tense. Paul does a dramatic shift as we begin to describe himself and his peers, all of us really. Paul is writing, I believe, as a truly regenerate and even a mature believer. How do we know that? Well, number one, he's opposed to evil in his fallen nature. Number two, he delights in God's law. We know from Scripture that the unbeliever doesn't. 
And number three, he longs for full and final salvation. Charles Cranfield said, quote, These verses depict vividly the inner conflict characteristic of the true Christian, a conflict such as is possible only in the man in whom the Holy Spirit is active and whose mind is being renewed under the discipline of the gospel. Let's look at these verses for a few moments this morning. I think they fall in two categories. Number one, Paul speaks of the law and the flesh in believers. The law and the flesh in believers. And he does that in verses 14 through 20. Now, there are two paragraphs in 14 through 20. The first is verses 14 through 17, and the second is verses 18 through 20. And they basically mirror each other. Paul is going to say the same thing two times. And so what I'd like to do is just put those two things together, and let's look at what he says. First, each of these paragraphs begins with a frank acknowledgement of innate sinfulness. It is a question of self-knowledge. Look at verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. And then verse 18a. I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present, but the doing is not. The doing of the good. And although the law is spiritual, the writer himself, Paul, is unspiritual or fleshly. And this doesn't mean he's not converted. What it means is he is converted, but he's acknowledging that he has two natures. There is a sin nature inside of him. And there is his redeemed self in Christ. And so although the law is spiritual, Paul sees himself as still fleshly still possessing and being oppressed by the twisted, self-centered nature called the sarks or the flesh in the Greek New Testament. And that's why he can describe himself as a soul, as a slave to sin. Now secondly, notice each of these two sections of the paragraph continues with a vivid description of the resulting conflict. Look at verse 15. For what I am doing I do not understand, and I am not practicing what I would like to do but I'm doing the very thing that I hate. Look at 18b and 19. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not want. You ever felt like that? You ever had a sense that you know the right thing to do? You wake up in the morning, you know instinctively what God's Word says and what is right and normal and natural, and yet you go against it. You go against it. Paul has this inability. He confesses an inability. Because I know what I can see is right, but I have an inability to carry it out. Thirdly, each section of these paragraphs ends by saying that the indwelling sin is responsible for the failures and the defeats of the person under the law. Look at verse 16 and 20. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. Verse 20. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want to do, I am no longer the one doing it, but the sin which dwells in me. So the conclusion is the law is neither responsible for our sinning, nor is it capable of saving us, nor is it capable of 
sanctifying us. It has been fatally weakened by our flesh. We cannot keep the law. We cannot improve ourselves by the law. And it is the law that forces us to the bosom of Jesus Christ. And so we see here this warfare, the law and the flesh inside of believers and how we deal with it. Now notice in verses 21 through 25, the double reality in believers. Basically, Paul points out two egos, two laws, two cries from the heart, and two services. Look at verse 21. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. There's the two egos. One seeks to do good, the other seeks to do evil. And notice he mentions two laws. Look at verses 22 and 23. I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind. Then there are two cries from the heart. Look at verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body, for the body of this death? And then in verse 25a, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Two cries come from this man, one of wretchedness and one of relief. And then there are two services or two slaveries in verse 25b. So then on one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on my other with my flesh, the law of sin. Paul is saying, I know the right thing to do, but I also realize that there is a power working inside of me to prevent me from that. And what is going to decide this battle between person A and person B inside of me has to do with my union with Christ and the assistance of the Spirit of God. You know, this passage reminds me of Robert Louis Stevenson's strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I hope you read it. The strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I was reading a commentary about that and uh, a literary critique, and they summed it up by saying, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is about the dangers of science and the duality of human nature. I agree with part of that definition. But it's not so much the dangers of science as it is the dangers of of sin. Sin brings about a duality. Sin brings about a rebellion against God's laws, His natural laws and His written laws. And so we have a tendency to pull away. You don't have to create or drink a scientific potion to discover your alter ego. That's what Mr. Hyde was to Dr. Jekyll. Dr. Jekyll was a fine, upstanding citizen. Edward Hyde was the alter ego. And so he drank a scientific potion to discover this alter ego. And not a one of us needs to do that, ladies and gentlemen. You can see your alter ego every day in your own life. And ending your life physically is no remedy for dealing with your sinful tendencies. That's what happens in the end. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde die. Mr. Hyde took over, and I suppose that's what led to it. We can't crawl into Stevenson's brain to find out what he really wanted to communicate. 
But we know that ending your life physically is no remedy for dealing with your sinful tendencies. I think we see that in Judas. Judas started out well as a disciple, but there were tendencies inside of him that were opposed to God's law, and they slowly but surely began to take over. And in the end, there was sorrow, and there was hurt, and there was pain, and he tried to make it go away by taking his own life. But that was just the beginning of his miseries. Because you see, only the death of Jesus Christ can make atonement for your sins. Only the death of Jesus Christ can satisfy the demands of God Almighty. Only the death of Jesus Christ can release you from the old person to being the new person. To become a new and glorious Creatures, when we die to ourselves and become truly alive in our union with Jesus Christ. And I believe Paul is picturing that in this portion of the passage, this intense struggle that goes on between the old man and the new man. Say, so what can we learn about this, John, practically speaking? Well, I have a couple of takeaways here. Number one, Romans 7 gives me a sense of conviction. A sense of conviction. What I mean by that is I'm stricken by the sheer violence of Paul's affections concerning his awareness of sin and his willingness to deal with it. When I read Paul, I'm absolutely stricken by this desperate struggle. And I have to ask myself, why is that? Why is Paul so violent in his affections here? Well, we know that sin separates us from God, and nobody was more zealous than the Apostle Paul. Nobody was more overwhelmed with a desire to know and enjoy intimacy with Jesus Christ than the Apostle Paul. And Paul knew that sin takes away from the sweetness of our intimacy with Jesus. And I have to ask myself the question, do I truly hate my sin? Or do I just say that publicly, while inside I love doing what I know I shouldn't do? You see, what that points to is perhaps a radical departure from my intimacy with Christ. And if you ever taste intimacy with the living Christ, you can't help but slowly hate your sin. Because you don't want anything to come in between you and that living Christ who loves you so much and brings peace and joy and satisfaction to your soul more than anything or anyone else can bring. I think this passage ought to give us a sense of conviction. Am I simply at ease in Zion? Or is there a sense of conviction that I want to be holy to the Lord because I want unhindered, sweet fellowship with this Jesus Christ. It also gives me a sense of relief. I don't know about you, but when I read this passage, I can say, I'm not alone in my dark side. I'm not alone. There are others who struggle like me. There's also a sense of transparency. You notice that Paul is sharing the unvarnished agony of his struggle against his old nature and the sin dwelling in it. And yet he's transparent. 
It's a beautiful picture of transparency, I believe, in the body of Christ. If Paul wrote these things down, he certainly wasn't afraid for everybody to read them. I got a letter or an email the other day from a precious church member. And this person, it was lengthy, and they began to describe past events in their life. And they were very transparent about their life, their relationship, their finances, and all that. And as I read it, I was so stricken. And I was comforted by the fact that I'm not the only one dealing with things like this. That's what Christian fellowship is. It's not simply getting together and talking about the score of the latest ball game. It is sharing our lives with one another. The unvarnished agony of being a Christian. Striving against the world, the flesh, and the devil. All the time enjoying sweet fellowship with the living Christ who is changing us. We need a great deal of transparency. Now, you can say too much, but you can certainly say too little. And I believe the Spirit-filled man or woman of God is knows how much to share, how much to withhold. Fourthly, I give, or Romans 7, it gives me a sense of sadness. When I think about those who do not know Christ, left only to themselves to negotiate the miserable lies of the sin nature. We're living in a world that is taking young men and women and twisting them and turning them into something they were never meant to be. Why is that? Because the sin nature will inevitably take over whenever there is no presence of Christ, whenever there is not a reaching out and a dependency upon Jesus and his crucifixion and resurrection. And we see evidence of that, the ugliness of what Satan can do to a life. It ought to make us sad, and it ought to make us pray for those who do not know the Lord Jesus. So Romans 7 gives me a sense of conviction, a sense of relief, of transparency, of sadness, but also a sense of hope. If you go back to verse 6, you kind of see the heart of this thing, or the heart of what Paul is saying now and what he's going to unfold for us in chapter 8. Look at verse 6. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. The law of God condemns and convicts us. Christ relieves us and saves us from that law. But he does so by his Spirit. And in chapter 8, Paul is going to unfold what it's like to embrace Christ, to have a union with him, to die with him in his law-keeping and obedience, and come to life living by the power of his Spirit. And so Romans 7, while it presents such a vivid and dramatic picture of struggle, there is a sense of hope. And that is for any person who embraces Christ and begins to live by the power of His Spirit inside of them. And we'll look at that more next week. For now, let's pray. Lord, I thank You so much for this passage in all the ways that it should touch us as believers. And I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us, that, Lord, more than anything, you would convict, 
that you would touch hearts today. Only you, Lord, can reach sinners. And so we pray that you would open hearts and open eyes spiritually to the glory of the gospel, that you may get all the praise and the glory and the honor for the change of life that only you can bring about. Lord, do all these things and more. We'll give you the praise and glory. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.